0: Good morning, everybody. So, if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along this morning, you can turn to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to cover the whole chapter. And the title of our lesson is The Test. The Test. Genesis chapter 22. Now, the story that we're going to be talking about today, the passage that we're going to be reading, is one that we all know. I doubt very seriously there's anybody in here that hasn't heard this story. And so you know all about it. You know how it's going to end. But if if, if we could somehow, I was thinking this week, if we could somehow just wipe our minds and read this story for the very first time, uh, like someone who had never heard it before. The fact is, is that if when we read it, we would uh, experience some type of emotion. We'd probably be shocked. Uh, we'd probably be a little bit confused. Uh, some of us might even be a little bit angry uh, toward God. In fact, if you go out and, and you read any of the atheist blogs or anything like that, a lot of them point to this story and say, well, I would never worship a God like that, which is kind of a weird thing to me. You know, they get upset about this story, but they, they don't believe, if you don't believe in it, we don't get upset about fairy tales, do we? I don't get up, you know, what, what Cruella's doing tomorrow. That doesn't really bother me. Right, but they get upset about this story, and I always think, well, if you know if you don't believe any, why are you upset about it? it to you, it's just a fairy tale. There must be something here that you that bought right you, are you with me but if, if we could read it for the first time it, it is it is shocking and it is confusing and, and we're going to look at some of this um today, so we'll we'll look at three aspects of this story. The first part we're going to look at is the command itself. let's look at uh, genesis twenty two one it says after these things. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Now, we all know that God's goal for us in this life is really to bring us to the point of ultimate surrender. The Bible talks about this in a lot of different ways. Romans 8, 29 says He wants to conform us to the image of His Son. And by the way, Jesus is the perfect example of surrender, right? Right? He surrendered to the will of the Father. That's what God wants to bring us to. He wants us to... Paul talks all the time about grow in the knowledge of the Lord. You know, we should be constantly maturing and growing. God has a place that He wants to bring us to uh, in this life. But the fact is, it doesn't... <clears throat> surrender does not happen the moment we trust Christ. We, we, we talk a lot... In fact, we get up and sing the song, I Surrender All, right? And people come down to the aisle, but everybody in here knows... That when you, from the time you, you gave your life to Christ, there was a whole life of surrender ahead of you. You didn't give up everything at that moment. You trusted Christ, but there was a lot of things in your life that needed, that, are you with me? Surrender is a lifelong experience. It's a lifelong process. Even though we, 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 we ask people surrender to Christ, in a sense they are, but in a sense it's a lifelong process. Jim Elliott, Many of you know him. Uh, he was the guy that was killed by the Indians uh, down in, in South America years and years ago. Uh, he was killed when he was 28. When he was 21, he wrote these words. He says, "...one does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime." And I, and I really like that. So surrender is a lifelong process. It's something that God takes us... The Bible talks about going from glory to glory to glory, Right? So what we need to understand here about Abraham <clears throat> is that it's, this is a process that he's been on for a long time. Okay, So when it says, after these things, he's talking about the events from chapter 12 when he was called out of the city of Ur all the way through the, his father's death and Lot, the separation from Lot and uh, all the way down through the sending Ishmael away from the family. He's talking about all of these events. It says, after these things, it comes to a culmination. So this is a a process that God's been dealing with him for many, many uh, years. Now let's look at verse 1 and 2 again. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, there's a couple questions that I ask myself, and I want to try to ask and answer for you this morning. First of all, why would God do this? Why, why, I mean, come on. There's gotta be other ways to test Abraham, right? <clears throat> well see, here's something we need to understand about Abraham. First of all, the word test here is the Hebrew word NASA, N-A-S-A-H. Th- this is not just a test that you either pass or fail. In fact, this is not a test just to see if Abraham is worthy of these promises that God has, has given to him. The, the word nasa, the word tested here, has a very specific meaning. It's the same word that's used in Exodus twenty twenty. There it says this, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. Nasa, that's that same word. So that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin." In other words, this test is a test which is designed to change a person. And that's very important. This isn't just a pass-fail test. This isn't just a test that says, oh, if you get, you know, if you get through this, you're worthy. This is a test that God will take someone through that is designed to change the very core of who you are. Okay? It's, it's, it's meant to, to change you to be a person that's closer to God, more like God, in, in a sense. See, when this test is over, Abraham will not be the same person. And in fact, to pass this test, he's going to have to change from a man who values... There are things in his life that he values more than God. There are things in his life that he still puts ahead of obedience to God. Now, you may say, well, what, what could that be? I mean, the man's living in a tent, right? He's never even built a house. He he left his home, and what 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 could we be talking about here? So, what is it that Abraham values more than God? Well, Abraham has had a problem for a long, long time in his life. And, and, and it's come to the point where God is going to deal with it. He's going to deal with it through this test. And his problem is that he has always put family ahead of obedience. <clears throat> he has always put family ahead of obedience to God. Now you say, well, where do you get that from? Well, go back to Genesis 12, 1, and look at the very first command God gives to him. The Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, get away from your kin, your, your, all your kinfolk, your relatives, your family, get out of your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. But we all know that when he left, who did he take with him? He took his father and he took his nephew Lot. And in fact, he only separated from his father when his father died, right? See, he never completely obeyed God. Eventually, he left his father, but it, but the situation forced it to happen. It wasn't out of just plain obedience. The next place in his problem he has with is Lot. Remember, Lot goes with him down into the land of Canaan, and the only reason they separate once again, is because of circumstances. They both became so prosperous they couldn't share the land. So it wasn't obedience that separated him from Lot. It was just the circumstances. Practicality dictated that they separate. Everybody with me? It wasn't obedience. And then, of course, there's the separation from Ishmael. He's got this son from Hagar who he loves and loves greatly. And he has to send him away, but that only happens when Sarah gives him an ultimatum. He doesn't do that out of just, out of just obedience. He has to be given an ultimatum. The situation once again has to force this thing to, to happen. So now Abraham is gonna come to this ultimate test. You see, the fact is Lot is gone. Ishmael is gone. Sarah will soon be dead. She's gonna, she's gonna, in the next chapter, she's gonna die. The fact is, he is at this point in his life where his family is Isaac. Isaac is everything to him. He's his only son. He is the one that he, that he loves. And so when God's gonna test him and say, okay, you've been, I've been putting up with this for a long time, son. Years you've been putting family ahead of me. It's time for this ultimate test. See, he's brought him to the point where it's either faith or family. Faith or family? Which one of these comes first in your life? So it is. it by far is the greatest test of his faith right here. And, and we, obviously we want to see what he's going to do. Now, <clears throat> here's a question. Is God asking or commanding Abraham to do something that is morally wrong? Is God asking Abraham to do something that is morally wrong? This is a tough one. I think we can all admit that when you read this story, the biggest problem you have is not with Abraham, is it? The biggest problem we have is with who? God. That's the problem we have with the story. You know, Abraham is the one that raises the knife. Abraham is the one that's going to do the deed. But we don't really have a problem with Abraham. We have a problem with, with God. You see, inherently, when we read this story, we feel like, and I I underline that word feel, we feel that God is asking Abraham to do something that is wrong. We just feel that way. Now, why do we feel that way? Well, there are two reasons. Number one, many of us here are parents. Now, and and let's be honest, yeah, there's some crazies out there, but a parent is repulsed by the idea of being asked to murder or sacrifice or kill their child. Right? That just repulses us. That that makes no sense to us at, at all. So that's that's the very first thing that that makes us feel like this is, is, is wrong. And and we think, well, you know, I'm a I'm a father. I would never do that. How could the Heavenly Father ask anybody to do that? Right? So that, that makes us feel like this has to be something something wrong. Secondly We view this command, we know it happened back in the Old Testament. We know there were were tribes and people back in that day who were sacrificing their children to false gods, to demons. They practiced child sacrifice, we know that. We also know that in the Old Testament, in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God called them out and said, that's wrong, right? Don't do that, don't act like them. So we think, well, because God said that's wrong, it, it has to be wrong in any context. So, so when we read the story, to us, it just seems like God is asking Abraham to do something <clears throat> that is morally wrong. And by the way, we know, because we've all read the story, that God is going to stop Abraham, but that doesn't solve the problem, right? Just because he stopped him, he still asked him to do it. How could he give in the order in the first place if it was an immoral order, right? Now, that's how we feel. But the problem is we turn to scripture and we see something different. See, when we turn to scripture, we are taught that God cannot do evil. He cannot do wrong, and by the way, he can he will never ask someone else to do wrong. For example, 1 John 1:5 1, says this, "In him is no darkness at all." No wrong, no sin, no evil at all. Everybody with me? The other thing in James 1.13, a scripture we're all familiar with, it said God cannot do evil and He never tempts someone to do evil. If you go back and read that scripture, it says when you're tempted to do evil, you're tempted from your own desires. Okay? So God does never tempt you to do evil. He's not involved in that. And He Himself cannot do any kind of wrong. therefore, <clears throat> we are forced to go, is it our feelings or is it Scripture we're going to believe? Is it the way I feel or is it Scripture? Well, if you're in this room, I hope you choose to believe Scripture. And Scripture tells us that even though we may feel one way, the God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac could not have been wrong because God cannot do wrong. He's incapable of evil. By the way... It can't be wrong because God did the exact same thing himself. He gave his own son. He sacrificed his his own son. So he's not asking Abraham to do something that he wouldn't do himself. In fact, he does do it himself. Now, you may say, well, I thought the Romans killed Jesus. Well, in effect, they did. But if you look behind the scenes at the Bible, for example, Isaiah 53, it says the Lord did that. For example, it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. God was doing that. That was God's will. That was God, God ordained that to happen. <clears throat> so the father here does the exact same thing that he's asking Abraham to do. Now, one thing about this command, we all know this, I hope, this was a one-time command. It had never been repeated. It it had never been asked anybody. He'd never asked anybody to do it before this, and he will never ask anybody to do it after this. This whole story is is an allegory. It's symbolic, and it's designed to illustrate what God himself would do 2,000 years later. This whole story is about Jesus Christ. This whole story is designed to illustrate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see Abraham's own willingness to give up his son illustrates God the Father's willingness to give up his son. The the agony that I'm sure that 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 Abraham felt inside as he's going on this journey and he's he knows what's coming is the same agony that God the Father goes through. And by the way, Isaac's obedience to his father illustrates Jesus' obedience to his father. The whole story is designed to illustrate what's going to happen 2,000 years later. So, in fact, instead of being an unloving command, which many people see it as, it actually is demonstrating God's love. And see, only, it's only when we understand the symbolic significance of this story, it's only then that we can see that this command is not wrong. It's actually holy and just and pure. That's not the way we feel, but it's what the Bible teaches us. And by the way, just in, in case you doubt that Isaac's sacrifice was symbolic of Christ. God tells Abraham, go to Mount Moriah. Anybody here know where Mount Moriah is? Mount Moriah today is one of the most hotly contested pieces of real estate in the world. There's a place on Mount Moriah today called the Dome of the Rock. It is where the temple would be built several uh, several hundred years later by Solomon. So Mount Moriah is the temple mount. So he tells Abraham, take Isaac... And go to the mountains of Moriah where I'll show you. And he literally sacrifices him where is going to sacrifice him where the temple would be built. Just a short walk where, from the mount where Calvary would be, just a few, you know, a, a few centuries later. Now, we are not told the exact time of this test in Abraham's life. All we know is it comes after chapter twenty one, after he has sent Ishmael away. Now I believe it's about ten years later. Now, I don't know that. Um, remember in chapter 21, Isaac is weaned, and we talked about the fact that back then they weaned, they didn't wean children at six months. They would wean them at three years old or four years old because you wanted to keep them on mother's milk as long as you could because it was good for them and healthy. Everybody remember we talked about that last week. So in chapter 21, Isaac is probably three or four years old. Now, I believe this happens, this story here happens about 10 years later. A couple of reasons for that. First of all, it gives ample time for the transfer of affection from Ishmael to Isaac. Remember, Abraham loves Ishmael. It told us that in chapter 21. But here in chapter 22, God says, take Isaac, your only son. Now, if if Ishmael had just left yesterday, God probably wouldn't say that, would he? But if Ishmael had been gone 10 years, now Isaac is the only son. If you hadn't seen your other son in 10 years, God would say, this is your only son. And notice he also says, whom you love. I mean, it, obviously, it, enough time has probably passed that, that, that Abraham is fully vested in Isaac as his only son. By the way, we'll also see in verse 6 that when they go up the mountain, that Isaac carries the wood. Now, I can't imagine him putting enough wood on a three- or four-year-old and saying, here, tote this wood, can you? The, the idea here would be that he was a young man, probably 13, 14, 15, 16 years old or so, that he could carry that kind of load. Now, again, I don't know that, but it just makes sense that it would be about 10 years later. So here we are, the, the command has been given, what will Abraham do? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. So Abraham rose early in the morning... And he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Now, I doubt Abraham gets up early. By the way, I I doubt he slept any the night before. God has just told you, hey, get your son, go to the place, and you're going to sacrifice him. And I doubt he slept at all. So he's up early, he takes a couple of young men with him, and he begins probably the longest journey of his life. It's only three days, but it is a a long three days. And finally they get to the point where the mountain of sacrifice is in view. Look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, inferred here, when it says, it doesn't say we're going to go over there and I'm going to come back. He says, "We're going to go over there, and we're going to come back." So, so right here in the in the midst of this just heart wrenching story, is this example of of Abraham's faith. Um, See, the fact is, Abraham knows that the same God who has told him to kill his son is also the same God who basically said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the descendants like the stars of the sky through that boy." I'm going to bless all the nations through that boy, right? So here he is. He's been told, given these great promises about his son, and now he's been told, you need to kill that boy. I mean, there's just huge contradictions sitting here in his mind. So he's faced with this this contradiction. Isaac represents the fulfillment of all the promises that God has given to him. So the question becomes, how does Abraham resolve this contradiction? On one hand, God's going to make me a great nation and give me descendants and bless the world through my boy. And then here God is saying, sacrifice him. How does Abraham resolve that contradiction? Well, we actually know how he did because the New Testament tells us. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says this. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though... God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. That's how he resolved it. He said, okay, God's commanded me to do this. Even if I do it, God will just raise him from the dead and fulfill his other promises. That's how he, that's how he, that's how he dealt with this contradiction. Okay. Cause the New Testament tells us that. Now here's something I want to say to you guys before we move on. We all come up against hard truths in the Bible that are sometimes difficult to obey. Now the question for us is what do we do at a time like that? See, a lot of people when they, when they open that Bible and they read that truth and, and it's a difficult truth for them, they, you know, they just make excuses. Some of them just write God off and do whatever they want and they, and they make excuses. They, well, you know, you can't take the Bible literally. That was written 2,000 years ago to a different, everybody with me? There's easy, there's easy excuses if you want to come up with them. So what they do is they skate around difficult parts of scripture and they end up doing exactly what they want to do. But let me tell you, that's not surrender. That's not surrender. See, there, there are commands in the Bible, and if you ever want to know, just come see me. There's commands in the Bible that I wish weren't there. I, I keep saying one of these days I'm going to preach a sermon, the five things I wish were not in the Bible. We all have things that we don't like, but you see, we obey them anyway. We submit to them anyway. That's surrender. See, the real test of surrender isn't when you obey the parts of the Bible you like. The real test of surrender is when you do what God asks you to do, even when you don't want to do it, even when you don't like what He's asking you to do. That's surrender. Now, one more thing about Abraham's obedience before we move on. Look at verse 5 again. Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with me, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship. Now, boy, there is a real key here. You ask, how is Abraham able to obey this incredibly difficult command? And one of the ways he's able to to do it is because he sees it as worship. You see, when you look at someone that obeys, I can tell you that worship is at the heart of unflinching obedience. One of the reasons, see, he's not focused on woe is me. Oh, look what God's asking me to do. This is so hard. What a sacrifice I'm making. He's not focused on him. He's focused on his great God. See, unflinching obedience at the heart of that is, 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 is worship. He sees this obedience as an act of worship. And the fact is, if we hesitate to obey difficult commands, the, one of our problems could very well be we're focused too much on ourselves and too little on God. If we're focused on God, we're going to be much more apt to obey Him as an act of worship than if we are focused on ourselves. Look at verses six through eight. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, uh, Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the land for a burnt offering, my son. And they went, both of them, together. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute Abraham on this journey. He's got his son with him. He's got the fire. He's got the knife. They got the wood. And they're walking toward this place, right? And I'm sure at every step he's thinking, okay, God, any any time now. Come on. You you know, you don't have to do this. Come on, get where's that? Where's the bush? Where's the word? Where's the where's something? Just tell me to stop this, right? I mean I mean, come on, he's a dad, he loves this son. This isn't some fairy tale, this is a real experience going on here. But nothing comes. No word telling him to stop, anything like that. And finally they come to the, the place. Verses nine and ten. When they came to the place of which God had told him Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And he bound his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now we all know what's going to happen, right? God's going to stop it. But God doesn't stop the test until Abraham literally takes the knife and lifts it up. Now you, and the question would become why? I mean, he's, he's been on this journey. He could have stopped it. Why did he have to wait till the very last second? Because it's not until that last second that that test truly took place. You see, the decision had to be made, one way or the other, in Abraham's heart. And the change, remember, this is a test that's designed to change him into a different person. Are you going to put faith or family? Which one? Which is it, Abraham? And it's not until he raises that knife that he truly, in his heart, chose faith, chose God. But see, once he takes up that knife and he makes that decision, the test is complete. There's no reason to do the deed. He has become a different man. Again, he's made the choice in his heart. So God stops him. Look at verse 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, when I read that verse, I find a very odd statement. He says, now I know. Now, isn't that an odd statement for an omniscient God to say? The Bible teaches us that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knew exactly from the time he commanded Abraham. He knew exactly what Abraham would do. He knew that, right? In fact, God knows what we're going to do. See, the point of the test isn't so that God will know. The point of the test is to change Abraham. The same way the test that we go isn't so that somehow we, we prove to God that we're worthy. The test is, we go through is to change us into a different person, to be more like him. So this is not a case of God learning something that, that, he, that he didn't know before. Instead, there's a new state of affairs that now exists within Abraham. His faith has now been completed by his work. Something dramatic has happened in his life, by the way. It's exactly the same thing the New Testament teaches us, by the way. James, there's if you read the New Testament, it's full of references to Abraham. and full of references to this story. James has one, James two twenty through 22 he says this from looking at this story. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. See, so that's what he's saying. He said his faith for the first time was completed by his, by what he did. By taking up that by, by taking up that knife. Now you may say, you may be sitting here and thinking like this: Why would anybody want to go that far with God? Wouldn't it be a lot safer just to kind of get along and go along? You know, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to be too radical. I don't want to be too much of a Christian, right? A lot of people live in that kind of life in this world, isn't it? It wouldn't it be a lot safer just to give? God, some of my life, but not the whole thing. By the way, if, if you believe that, I, I got two words for you that. Remember Lot. That was exactly Lot's uh, a, a way to go through life. I'm going to give God just enough, but I'm not going to give him too much. I'm going I'm to kind of straddle the fence here. And what happened to him? He ends up in a cave, drunk, committing incest with his daughter. If you try to hold on, we're going to see a wonderful lesson here at the end. If you're like Lot... If you try to keep one foot in the faith and one foot in the world, that's disastrous. You'll end up losing the very things you try to hold on to. But if you'll give them to God, you'll end up gaining that plus even more. So remember him if that's our attitude. Now, finally, we close with the provision. Verses 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram "...caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son." So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord... By the way, Mount Moriah, it shall be provided. See, at the very point of total obedience to God, God steps in and provides exactly what we need... By the way, God did not halt the sacrifice because God requires sacrifice. So, the, right there on Mount Moriah, where in, in, a, in a few hundred years Solomon would build the temple of God, right there on this barren mountain, he provides a substitute for Isaac. In this case, a, a ram. You see, listen, what a, what a great story. And, it, and as I said, it's an allegory of what would happen 2,000 years later. See, the fact is today, to justify God's holiness and God's requirement for justice, God demands that people who sin die. The the wages of sin is what? Death. If you're a sinner, then the requirement is you must die because you have rebelled against God. That's the requirement. But then what God does is He sends a provision. He sends a substitute, and that is His only Son to die in the sinner's place. See, Christ is the provision that is provided by God. And that's the whole point of that story. In John 8:56, Jesus said this about Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. I don't know this for sure, but it could very well be that Jesus is referring to this incident on the mountain. That when Abraham was able to look ahead and see that one day, the same way he stopped me from having to slaughter my son and provided a a substitute, one day God will provide a substitute for me and for you and for you and for you. Abraham looked ahead, he saw my day, and he rejoiced to see it. He was glad. could very well be that he's talking about that. Finally, we end up with the promise. Now, this is interesting. Verses 15 to 19. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There are two words you see in there. I underlined them so you know. I'm going to do these things, Abraham, because you did this. I'm going to fulfill my promises, Abraham, because you did this. Everybody see that? Now, a couple things here. First of all, it is very unusual for God to swear. Very unusual for him to swear an oath. He's God. He can't lie. He doesn't need to swear an oath, does he? Doesn't need to do that. Hebrews says this about this. Hebrews 6, 13-14. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. You know, even today we go and I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, uh, nothing but the truth, so help me, what? God. We, we swear to something greater because the idea is by swearing there's a penalty for breaking that, right? That's the idea. Somebody has 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 authority over us so we swear by that person so we have to the only thing we can swear to is is swear to god right god says there's no one greater than him so he has to swear by himself but that's very unusual for god to do it's like he wants to make a point to abraham that what i'm i'm saying is it's a done deal I, i i swear upon myself that this thing is is going to to happen it's an amazing thing that Abraham's supreme act of obedience brings forth God's supreme assurance of blessing. See, the fact is, if you lack if you're here today and you lack assurance of God's promises, maybe you're just you're doubting all the time. Let me tell you what you can start doing, obey. Because when you begin to walk in obedience, his assurances pour out on you. Assurances follow obedience. And the greatest assurance follows the greatest obedience, as we see here. Now, as God reconfirms His promises to Abraham... he's By the way, He's already made these promises multiple times. Go back to chapter 12 and read. But something is different. Before, these promises were always made unconditionally. He never said, I'm going to do this because you did that. He just said, I'm going to do it. But here He actually changes. He's already promised all this before unconditionally, did it back in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 18, but now he says, I'm gonna do it because you did that. Now they're, ple- they're, they're promised because Abraham has obeyed God. Now, at first, this may seem like a drastic change, but it's really not. The fact is, if you go back and read some of the chapters previously, God has always tied Abraham's obedience with the promise. Genesis seventeen one through two. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, so that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Genesis seventeen nine. God said to Abram, "As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you." There was always obedience required on Abraham's part. Genesis eighteen nineteen. For I have chosen him, talking about Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteous and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. See, the fact is, God's blessing always includes the, mean to get, the means to get that blessing, which is faith and obedience. Everybody with me? God's promises always include the means to grab those promises or attain those promises, and the means to get those promises are always faith. And obedience. So now that he's passed this ultimate test, God can truly say for the first time that the blessings that are coming are, are the result of the obedience that you've exhibited through faith. By the way, this is exactly what the New Testament says. Exactly what the New Testament says. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Works and faith always go together. Always. He saved you not because of your works, but He saved you for good works. He says, I'm going to save you not because of anything you've done, but after I save you, I'm going to put you to work. It's always been that way, right? James says it this way, James 2, 21-24. And we just read that. Faith was completed by his works. James makes this argument over and over again. If you just say you have faith but no works, your faith is dead. It's not real faith. It's not true faith. True faith always results in good works. Same thing Paul said. Same thing that's exhibited back in Abraham. Abraham's faith resulted in the passing of the test. It resulted in supreme obedience. Let's look at verses 19 to 24. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, there's a there's a really cool lesson here at the end, and if you don't, you'll almost miss it. It says this, Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Chemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidpla, and Bethuel. And Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaim, Tehash, and Makah. You read that and you think, okay, let's just get to the next chapter, right? But boy, there are two lessons here. Two things I think these do. First of all, Abraham has probably been wondering... Where am I going to find a wife for Rebecca? Right, I mean a wife for Isaac, because he's living amongst these Canaanites. He doesn't want a a a Canaanite wife. That wouldn't be a good thing. Where am I going to get a wife? So the first thing somebody comes along and says, "Oh, your brother Nahor, he's got he got children coming out of the. I mean, they got that boy's got children everywhere, and a bunch of sons, right? And so now he he's he knows where he can get a wife." uh... for isaac so that's the first thing that's taken care of here but boy there is something even greater than that and that is this it reunites abraham with his family god in chapter 12 said leave your family leave your kindred get away from all of that go to a land that i will show you and abraham struggles with that all the years and finally when he finally passes the test to choose faith over family what does a god immediately do here's your family Isn't that awesome? Isn't that exactly what Matthew Jesus said in Matthew 16? Whoever wants to save his life, you'll lose it. But if you'll lose your life, if you'll give it up to God, God will turn around and give you everything back. That's just amazing to me. On the moment that he says, Okay, I give you everything, God, even the son that I love, God turns right around and says, Oh yeah, let me put you back with your brothers and put you back with your family because now I know. That you put me above any, of that. now you get them all back. I just think that's an amazing way to, uh, to act to, to end that story. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other stuff that you want, you need. I, I'll add that to you. Just put me first. Put me first. Put obedience to me first. And all those things you want, I'll give them to you. But if you try to hold on to them, and again, like Lot, isn't it amazing with Lot? Here's Lot, one foot in and one foot out, and he loses everything. Trying to hold on to everything, he loses everything. And if he just does like Abraham and gives everything up, he ends up getting it all back uh, in the end. Next week, we turn to Genesis 23 and the death of Sarah. Uh, if you want to read ahead, feel free to, uh, to do that. Let's pray. Father...